Hello, and welcome to the Hope International University podcast entitled Hope for the Broken Leader. I'm Paul Alexander. I'll be uh, leading the podcast and speaking much of the time. Sometimes I'll have a guest. This first two-part segment is based on the work I've been doing in churches the last few years, and it's on grief, loss, and trauma. It's close to my heart, and I hope that these uh, first two episodes are as helpful as they can possibly be to you or someone that you care about. The purpose of these podcasts is to educate, encourage, and support pastors and other Christian leaders in spiritual and emotional issues, to be real, to be authentic, and to be transparent in ways that are the most helpful to you. Now, why am I doing this podcast? Why in the world would a college president want to or think that they even could do this podcast? Uh, Well, it's partly because I have a very strange background. I don't have a normal um, set of credentials that would lead you to a college presidency, Uh, but I have credentials that make sense. I have a bachelor's in preaching, I have a master's in marriage and family therapy, and I have a PhD in organizational leadership. I've got 6,000 hours of clinical practice and I've been licensed as a psychotherapist for 31 years. And as I say that, I realize just how old I am. About four years ago, uh, here in Southern California, we were rocked by three different incidents in a short period of time of pastors in the Southland that each took their own lives because of longstanding depression. And they couldn't climb out and they reached uh, the end of what they could cope with. And in our church community and in our faith community here, everyone that I knew seemed to know someone who knew one of these three pastors. One of them worked at a friend's church uh, up in um, North Los Angeles County. One worked out in the Inland Empire, and I knew several people who knew that pastor. All three of these cases led me to the question, is there anything I can do to help local churches? Uh, With my background helping pastors and counseling pastors, even as a college administrator, I've always worked a little bit on the side with Christian leaders and tried to help, to use my clinical training to encourage, to to support, um, to help pastors get through rough periods. And that really comes from my own background. As a pastor's kid, I grew up in a pastor's home, and I watched how hard it could be for my mom and dad sometimes to endure the down times in ministry. In fact, I remember specifically two different times when people left our small church, um, people that mom and dad had known well, only to see my mom and dad really just be rocked and um, be upset. And really, in one case, kind of went into a funk for a while because this was a personal loss. And ministry is a very personal pursuit. So four years ago, I reached out to my pastor at my church. I go to Eastside Christian Church in Anaheim, reached out to my senior pastor, and I said, can I come speak to the staff about depression and ministry? Um, I put together some notes of the work I've done over the years. Could that be helpful to you? And he said yes, and went and spoke to the 70 or so pastors and, and high-capacity volunteers in the room, and that led to other invitations A year and a half later, I had spoken to 2,200 pastors and had asked them to rank nine factors that could potentially be depressive in ministry. In fact, if you want to watch that uh, seminar, it's on our YouTube channel. It's called Depression and Ministry. It's three parts. Um, They're all, I think, important. More people have watched part one than two and two than three, but um, it all goes together as, as a package. 
As I did that seminar, each time we would hand out a survey and ask people to rank these nine factors that can be or could be depressive in ministry. And I was really surprised by the results. Uh, the top three results from a big sample, 2200 is a big sample size, the top three uh, factors that were seen as depressive or potentially depressive by pastors were one, the belief that I am my numbers, that all that matters is programmatic success, and that if I'm not achieving numbers, I'm not as good as, that that could be a depressive. Number three was a lack of true soul care, the inability to carve away space and time to take care of myself. What surprised me, I wasn't surprised by number one or number three. What surprised me was number two, which was unresolved trauma and or loss. And I knew that it would be maybe in the middle of the pack. I did not believe it would be as high. And frankly, I didn't think it would get up to number two, but it told me that there's a connection between the down spirit and the down and dark side of ministry and the idea of loss and grief and trauma. But the more I thought about it the last couple of years, I realized that a lot of pastors don't have the ability or the freedom or the space to process their grief and their loss and their hurts because it's difficult to let your guard down enough because it exposes you. There's a vulnerability. Some people fear they might even lose their job if they were completely open and honest. You don't really wanna stand up and tell your church that you're struggling with your faith or your marriage or fill in the blank, fill in the blank. But there's still this need to be open, to, to learn how the Lord wants to heal us in areas of loss and trauma and grief. This is also a very personal um, topic for me. Last year, I lost both my mom and my dad about eight months apart from each other. So when I get to the section on grief, uh, complicated and uncomplicated brief. Uh, that's that's a heaviness for me, and you may see that in my eyes and, and hear it in my voice. But I want to start by talking about trauma, and and I want you to, to stay with me as long as you can, because in a few minutes I'm going to talk about the difference be between big T and little t trauma, and understanding that difference could be life-changing for you as it was for me. But let me tell you about the, the single greatest lesson that I ever got in trauma. Long after my clinical training, years after I was a licensed therapist, I sat down with a coworker, we'll call him Gary, that's not his name. I sat down with a coworker and I asked him how he was doing and we got in some chit chat and he said something about when I was in the army. Now I had worked with Gary for at least a decade when this happened. And I said, you were in the army? And he said, yeah. I said, well, what did you do in the army? So, well, I was in the 101st Airborne. I don't know if you've heard of it. Now, I don't know a lot about all the branches of armed service, but I know the 101st Airborne. These are the guys that jump in behind enemy lines and fight their way back and forth between the, the drop zone and the front lines. I said, Gary, that's incredible. What did you do in the 101st Airborne? And he looked at me and his eyes got glassy. He said, I took care of the German Shepherds. I was in charge of the K-9 unit for several platoons. Now I knew he was an animal lover, but I didn't know that that love for animals went back to his days in Vietnam. And then he said something to me that started uh, a very strange sequence of events that ultimately ended up okay. But, but here's why I'm telling you this story. He said, do you want me to ever come into your leadership skills class and talk about what I learned in leadership when I was in Vietnam? And before he was even done asking the question, I said, yes, 
I would love for you to come and do that. Because my guess was in our community here at Hope, uh, people didn't even know he was in the service and he was a beloved professor. And I thought, yes, please come in. Well, he came in one day, have a 75 minute class session and he spoke for just about 60 minutes about his experience assigning duties for uh, the daily patrols and deciding who would go take point with a canine companion, with the German Shepherd, usually, and take these dogs out on patrol, knowing that he assigned people to run point for platoons and that they were at the most danger, had the most risk of anyone out on patrol. Because the enemy would try to kill the dog or the dog handler, because once they were gone, they had a much greater chance of picking off people in the platoon. And as he's talking about his experiences in Vietnam, I looked over at my group of 20, 22 year olds, 23 year olds, 19 year olds, and they were spellbound. Gary was a math and science teacher who rarely talked about himself. And yet here he was in a leadership class talking about what it's like to be in war, to be in battle and to be a leader. Now, at about the hour mark, he said, I have to go. I could tell he was getting a little emotional. And we spent the last 15 minutes in the class talking about how powerful his story was and his model of leadership that he had developed. Two weeks go by, three weeks go by. I sat down with him in the cafeteria and I said, hey, man, I haven't seen you. I meant to write you a note. I just can't tell you how, how happy I am and thankful I am that you came into my class and talked about leadership. He turned to me, we were sitting side by side, he turned to me with tears in his eyes and put his fork down. I'll never forget this. He took his glasses off and he said, I don't think I should have done that. I said, why? He said, ever since that day, I've had nightmares. I can't sleep very much. When I do sleep, I wake up right away. I'm having flashbacks things that I haven't thought about for years and years and I can't get them out of my mind. And he, he was visibly shaken as he's telling me about his trauma and the, and the reliving that trauma. Obviously we know that as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. And I said, I am so sorry, is there anything I can do? Can I connect you with a therapist? Can I, how can I help? I'll do anything I can. Cause I felt incredibly guilty, felt bad for my friend. And I felt responsible that I had somehow caused this reliving of the of the wartime trauma. I didn't see him again until after Christmas break. And uh, reluctantly, sheepishly rather, sat down with him at lunch and I said, how are you doing? Now it had probably been two months, um, maybe a little more than that even since he had been in my class. And he looked at me and this time he turned with a big smile and joy in his eyes, left his glasses on and he said, you know what? I just realized the other day, I'm sleeping better than I've ever slept in my life. And I said, well, did you go to a counselor? Did you go to a, a you know, the VA? What happened? He goes, I just started telling my wife about my experiences in war because she had never heard them. And I decided just to be honest with her about what I saw, what we did and didn't do, and what it was like to come home. And as he was telling me that, he was beaming and I was starting to get really emotional because I was feeling relief. I had felt so bad and, and so responsible. But here's what I learned. And I'll say it again at the end, whether this is a one part or we break it into two. I, I'm gonna say this to you a couple times, definitely at the end. 
The most important thing I can tell you about trauma is that we must be willing to think about it again and talk about it again or it will never heal. I'm gonna say that again when it comes to trauma. We must be willing to think about it, we must be willing to talk about it or it will never heal. Now, most of us have not been in war. Most of us have not had horrific things happen to us, things that make the news. Those things just don't happen to most people most of the time. And most pastors, most Christian leaders haven't had horrific experiences, but we have had some trauma. And maybe they're little T traumas, maybe they're big T traumas. But I wanna share a list with you of some things that might be on the surface actually tied to a deeper moment or period or era in your life that was traumatic. So look at some of these, listen to some of these and see if these are indicative of what you might be experiencing. Number one is when you have exaggerated responses to people or places, you're easily irritated or you hear a sound and suddenly your whole body shuts down or, or it's fight and flight or freeze. Or somebody says something to you that's a little critical and you blow up, right? They say something to you at a two and you blow up at a 10. Your responses are not the same as the environment around you. Number two, avoidance. This is a very understandable one. If I was traumatized in a certain place in my town, I'm not gonna wanna go near that place again. If I was traumatized by a relationship with someone, a former boss or old girlfriend, boyfriend, or my ex, right? I, I would avoid those because it brings up feelings I don't wanna feel. Self-medicating. Uh, one of the most natural things that people do when they're in pain and have trauma in their past is try to deaden that pain. First, by forgetting, but secondly, by using substances that will quiet the noise and that will quiet the pain. The most obvious one in the world is alcohol. Uh, the beer and wine industry in the Western Hemisphere and really now globally, the beer and wine industry has done a really good job convincing us that alcohol makes us happy while ignoring the fact that alcohol is actually a central nervous system depressant. So trauma does lead to anxiety and depression, but we're often treating it with a depressant, which only makes matters worse. The next one is short-fused. Now, we can all be a little short-fused. I, I admit I'm short-fused. I was speaking to a church with a staff of about 60, 60 a while back, and I got to this one. I said, how many of us are short-fused? We have a little bit of a temper. Out of the 60 people in the room, one person in the back put his hand halfway up. And I thought, you guys are joking. I said, in a room this big, there should be five, six, seven, ten of us that admit that we're a little short-fused. People who have been traumatized often have an extremely short fuse and have, again, these exaggerated responses. Fuzzy memories. Now, this is a tough one because the older we get, I'm 60 now, the older we get, we do forget some things. Uh, I can remember some things with crystal clarity, and yet I can't remember things that my wife told me to pick up at the grocery store, apparently, right? But we're not talking about specific conversation or one day. We're talking here about periods of time that are just gone. Uh, I worked with a client one time that couldn't remember third grade. That's a big gap, and there was a reason the client couldn't remember it. If the clients not remember living in a certain house or blanking about certain periods when something happened in their lives. So fuzzy memories or completely blocked memories.
Now the last two on the list are closely related, so I'm gonna read them from my PowerPoint here, but never ending numbness or dread combined with a feeling of being not real or not like a real person. I'll say those again, a never ending numbness or, or dread, just a down, paralyzed, not feeling, right? Feeling like you're numb. Combined with this feeling of not being real or, or not being a real person called depersonalization or derealization. If you have ever been high on medication or any other substance, or you've ever been without sleep for two or three days, you would have experienced one or both of these feelings of not quite being there, not quite being real, um, not knowing what's real and what's a dream, and things become very distorted. Now, that list doesn't have some of the classic indicators of PTSD, like reliving the event uh, or, or having ab reactions where your body remembers the event, the mind and the body remember the event, or having horrible flashbacks that come out of nowhere or nightmares. Those are all indicative of PTSD. Just do a Google search on symptoms of PTSD. The reason I put this list together is this is sometimes the more day-to-day, -day, um, the more plain vanilla form of life after trauma that I see in leaders. Some of the subtle indications that maybe some trauma of some kind has occurred. So I just want you to think about those issues. Now the next part here is a little bit of a quiz. I'm gonna ask you to come up with a number. I'm gonna read nine things. And you tell me, uh, you know, just talk aloud in your car. <laughs> you tell me or say out loud your number at the end, but I'm gonna describe the issue or the item or the occurrence and, and you think in your mind, is this trauma or not trauma? And just keep count of how many of these you think are trauma. Number one, grief, right? In my case, losing my mom and dad recently, and just you're in a grief process. Is grief traumatic? Number two, illnesses, are they traumatic? Number three, job loss. Many of us have dealt with that, is it trauma? Number four, accidents, like a simple car accident. Next one, loss of abilities, cognitively or physically. You used to be able to compete and now you can't. Your legs used to work perfectly fine and now one leg doesn't work very well. Or you're having big problems doing processing, intellectual processing, math, reading, comprehension, whatever. We see declines in ability. Is, is that traumatic? Horrible work conditions. Now, we all have bad days at work every now and then. I'm not talking about your boss said something that made you frustrated or upset. What I'm talking about is horrible work conditions, abusive, uh, where you don't feel safe at work. The next one may surprise you, but after you think about it for a while, you, you might say yes to this one. Um, this is just indebtedness, mountains of debt, usually credit card debt, right? If you're paying off credit cards with credit cards, if you're spending more every month than you take in, is that dramatic? Next to last one, um, it's probably hard not to say that this is trauma. So I'll just tell you, this, this one's trauma. Uh, being the victim of a crime or witnessing a crime. You, you, you have to count that one. And then the last one is growing up in an extremely dysfunctional family. Now, every family is dysfunctional. My family, uh, growing up, little dysfunctional. My family, my wife and our two kids, a little dysfunctional, meaning we're not perfect. But there's dysfunction and then there's dysfunction. From little door dings that we give each other, 
You know, I said something in, in a way that wasn't very helpful, wasn't very kind, wasn't very loving, all the way to the most horrific things that you can possibly imagine. What I'm talking about here is an extremely dysfunctional family. Um, think about alcoholic families or, you know, substance abuse families, family where there was an imprisonment, um, families where there was sexual abuse or physical abuse, right? So those are the nine, grief, illness, job loss, accidents, loss of abilities, horrible work conditions, mountains of debt, victim of a crime slash witnessing a crime and growing up in an extremely dysfunctional family. So with the 400 folks that I've talked to so far in this new seminar, um, I have people raise their hand when I run through the numbers and you just, you know, say out loud wherever you are or whoever you're uh, listening with or watching with, see what your number is. You know, do you think it's a one, a two, a three, all the way up to nine? For me, my number is probably a seven or an eight. I can argue most of these in pretty easily that most of these could be traumatic. I certainly don't think anyone could argue victim of a crime out of the list at all. Um, I could probably argue illnesses out depending on what the illness is. Anyway, the reason this little quiz is here is to remind you that not everything has to be horrific for it to be trauma because there are lots of kinds of trauma or types of trauma. For a lot of leaders, they believe that you have to have been in battle, actual war, to have PTSD. And what my experience has been is that many, many Christian leaders have some form of trauma or loss or grief in their past that is still ulcerating. There's still a hole. There's still a raggedness to that injury. And the items on this list would be indicative of actual trauma that you could be stuck in the processing of. I know the grammar didn't work out on that sentence, but you know what I mean. It's stuck somewhere. There's still damage. Now, I postponed taping this a week ago because I had, had just had fresh uh, procedures done, um, seven different spots on my body for skin cancer. And you can still see the remnants of one of them on my cheek if you're watching this instead of just listening to it. But I thought rather than put makeup on it or put a Band-Aid on it or keep delaying, I thought actually this is an actual, this is a nice lead in for this section here on trauma itself. Um, I have had now about 15 procedures done for skin cancer. Uh, if you look at the color of my skin, uh, it's very Scottish, English, Irish. Those are my roots. I did not inherit any kind of tone to my skin other than freckles. And in my generation, when you went to the beach, uh, not only did you not put on sunscreen, we didn't really know about it, but we would put on baby oil. Now, the thought of doing that now is absurd. Uh, no one would do that now uh, because we know what the sun can do to our skin. And because of a series of sunburns uh, that I had in high school and college primarily, I've had a bunch of skin cancers on my arms, my hands, the top of my head, my back, my shoulder, my neck. And only one of them was very serious. The rest have not been very serious. And when I talked to my dermatologist, the first time the first skin cancer appeared, I said, I remember having two horrible sunburns, one when I was about 16 and one when I, when I was 21. I said, is it possible that this cancer is related to, to maybe like one or both of those sunburns? 
And my dermatologist looked at me and he said, he said, you can get skin cancer from even one small sunburn. And it may just lie there in your skin for decades. And one day you have a spot. I'll never forget that because I thought, I thought that as long as you didn't have any big bad sunburns, you're probably okay. And what I learned that day is even a single burn can someday bring about a scar. And that is absolutely the case with trauma. Sometimes a single incident, decades later, will suddenly come into your life. You haven't thought about it for years. And now you're having some sort of reaction, uh, some sort of um, reaction. You're acting or behaving differently, or suddenly you're having dreams out of nowhere. Or you're getting really irritable for no reason. Having long ago forgotten about the incident, you're now seeing the surfacing up on the skin layer of what has been in there for a long time. Again, one of the reasons that's true is because we confuse trauma and assume that trauma is only the big, horrible things that can happen to you. To have a near-death experience, um, to survive a catastrophic event. Those are, those are absolutely traumatic. Going to war, yes, that is absolutely traumatic. The battlefield, scenes from battlefields, big T trauma. What we don't know is how often we are impacted by a series of little t traumas. The little losses and hurts and conflicts and breaking of relationships and the losing of a church member or the way a staff member treated you or an elder or your boss or what's going on currently with you and your kids or grandkids. What we under process are the little t traumas in our lives. And what I'm beginning to learn about Christian leaders is most leaders that I know and have worked with have not just one little T trauma in their life, but they often have a collection of them. And some of us have done a good job talking about them, and some of us have not. Some of us are like my friend Gary, who didn't want to talk about it and resisted it and had some symptoms because of it, anxiety and sleeplessness and, and some other issues, or him after he began talking about it, who's now in a period of healing. Big T trauma, easy to understand. Little T trauma, much more challenging. I'm gonna come back to trauma in a little bit. But just now I wanna to talk to you about grief. My favorite quote ever about grief is this. C.S. Lewis, to paraphrase him, said, grief is the price we pay for having loved. That is a great, that is a really great definition and explanation of grief. It is the price we pay for having loved. Uh, in the case of my mom and dad, it is the price that I pay knowing that they're gone. When I think of grief, my, my definition for a long time has been grief Grief is dealing with the essential goneness of the person. I don't know if that's printed anywhere. That's my phrase. Maybe somebody else coined that too. Right, but that's the first wave. The, the person that I care about is gone. The essential goneness. And I'm, I miss them. And I want to see them. I wish I could. I long to. But what took me a long time to understand, many, many years, is that we underestimate not the price of the relationship, what we don't understand is the tax that we pay when we grieve. Again, this is my term, but it seems to work. 
See, we undercommunicate the tax that we pay because as great as our relationships were, none of them are perfect. And the more troubled the relationship, the higher the tax. The tax refers to forgiveness that had not yet happened, ambiguity in the relationship, words that were not spoken, things we did and didn't do, things they said and didn't say. It's all the open-ended issues that were never fully resolved in the relationship. The guilt that you feel for not being around enough, the guilt that you feel for not saying everything you wanted to say or not taking better care of someone, the questions that you have about someone's spiritual life, the anger over what they did or didn't do to you. See, we understand the goneness and we understand that we miss people. But in the clinical world, there's something called complicated and uncomplicated grief. I'm here to tell you, there are very few cases of truly simple grief. Almost always, there's some, some tax that we pay.